Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. And let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word, ever true, forever strong. We thank you, Lord, for um, the example that you left us while you walked this world with the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, God, the same spirit that we have inside of us, God. I pray that we would, as a faith family, as individuals, live holy lives, God, that would be acceptable in your sight. I pray, God, that we would... um, that you today would have put on our heart the importance of pursuing your righteousness, God, and that we would uh, strive to, to please you with our lives, Lord. I thank you for this group of people. Well, Lord, we love you. Uh, I pray that you would help me to rightly divide your word, that I wouldn't lead anyone astray. God, that all of us would leave this place loving you more. Bless this time in your word as we hold it in our hands and in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And uh, so last week we finished up chapter 7, thus we're in chapter 8. But uh, it was Jesus teaching the crowds and, and uh, ministering to them there during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, one of the three weeks of vacation that you would get as a, uh, a Jew living in, in that culture. And in those days, they set up these three feasts. And as the feast came to a conclusion there on the eighth day, Jesus stood up and said, guys, I know who you are. I know what you're about. I know that you have been hungry for something. I know that you have a thirst that you have tried to quench with the things of this world and you've been left wanting. Well, I'm here to say, Jesus would say, I am the thirst quencher. I am your, uh, no, I'm not going to say, I was going to say, I'm your Gatorade, but no, that's not, not where I want to go. I am the one who quenches your thirst so that you will never be thirsty again. And it's not found in the things of this world. You won't be satisfied with the, the temporary or the, the, the physical. Those things, they satisfy for a moment, but they leave a hole in your heart. And that hole is created by me, God would say, with the intent and the purpose that there is one thing that will fill that hole, and that, of course, being Jesus. He will quench that thirst. I am the one that you're looking for is what He says. The rest of the things of this world leave us lacking. And as he made those bold statements, even as he said in an earlier chapter, I am the bread of life and you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to be a part of me. As he makes those statements, the leaderships of the day were was having trouble with that. And they were taking offense in that. And so they sought, it said, to lay hands on him. Just so we're all clear, that's not a good thing. <laughs> they, they're not looking to pat him on the back here. It might better say they sought to lay fists on him. They wanted to take him out. They, they, were, they, were, they were looking to kill him. But as we saw, God's plan is perfect. His timing is perfect. And this was not yet his time. This was not yet time for Jesus to go. And so he went unscathed. He, he, he escaped from the crowd. And that's where we kind of left off there at the end of verse, or chapter 7. They were looking to lay hands on him. It says in verse 1 of chapter 8, Gospel of John. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So he leaves the crowd, he steps back, and he goes to the Mount of Olives. And you know what? Jesus would do that very often. 
That was kind of his hiding place, if you would. Not hiding from, but hiding to, gathering with the Father. He would go to the Mount of Olives. He would get by himself there in the olive grove where all the trees were and just hang out. Just him and Jesus, or Jesus and the Father, rather. And, and, and just the two of them would be together. Jesus did that often. Do you? Do, do you have somewhere that you go that you can unplug from the world and just be with your God? We need that in our lives. If, if Jesus needed it, and He did, he, he sought to do it here, you and I need it as Christ followers as well. We need to have a place where we don't see the TV screen and we leave the phone in the other room and we unplug from everything, all the distractions of life, and for a time, just sit and, and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to our hearts through prayer, open up the Word of God and just allow Him to speak to us through His Word. We need that in our lives, Christian. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself dry, lacking. So create a space in your life. Find your Mount of Olives. There aren't any, we're in Columbus. There are no mounts here. We have no hills whatsoever. You have to go to where uh, Mike is from to find hills. You know, I have to go out there, wherever he's from. He drives it like an hour to get here. So, you know, that's pretty cool. Um, find a place that you can be. It's just you and God. And take advantage of that. Jesus went and did that often. How often should you do it? I don't know. You need to figure that out on your own. But unplug from life at times. Breathe at times. And just be with God. Our, our example is in Jesus, and He did that. He went to the Mount of Olives. It says in verse 2, Now early in the morning He came again into the temple, and all the people came to Him, and He sat down and taught them. I like that. Jesus goes, He gets alone, He, he spends some time alone, and then he, he goes, okay, I'm not done. I still have things I need to say. My mission isn't over. I'm going back. And He goes back to the temple and begins to teach again. Now what's interesting is the feast is over at this point. This is day nine, let's say, the next day. And everybody's kind of heading home, but they see, oh, Jesus is still here, and He's still... Maybe we'll stick around a little bit longer. That's what it appears because it says, all the, and all the people came to him. So they were ready to head home. They had kind of packed up their tents and they were getting ready to head out. And they said, well, he's still teaching. Jesus isn't bound by this is when the feast is. He, he, he's like, I still got work to do. And so he goes and speaks. And it says the people came to him. I like this. Just as a, a note here, it says he sat down and taught them. He sat down and taught them. And in those days, as you interacted as a group like this, the teacher sat and everybody else stood. So next week, <laughs> there'll be no chairs here, except right here. And I'll come in and I'll sit down and you guys can stand. <laughs> and you're like, uh-uh, I bought this chair. I put my ties in the box. I paid for this one. This is one's mine. You're not taking it. No, I'm not going to take it from you, but... But just hey, that's kind of different, you know, different culture, different time. They, he, the teacher sat down, the people stood up. <clears throat> so verse three, then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in, in adultery in the very act now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? 
This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the ground, wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So Jesus is there teaching. I don't know if these men came in uh, dragging this woman along with them and interrupted what he was saying. I don't know if there was a break in the action and then they, they presented this. But what this scene is, is an utter disgrace to these men. What they are doing is absolutely repulsive. And, and, and Jesus is going to do well to show them that as he walks through this with them. They catch, catch a woman in adultery. The very act it said. Think about that for a minute. It's got to be a setup, right? It, you, you, you don't catch somebody in the very act of adultery. You're not just walking down the street and you look left and go, oh, oh, that looks like adultery. You don't just catch people in the act of adultery. Usually those that are in the act of adultery are pretty good about hiding it. So is this a setup? And then the next question, as they drag in the woman, where's the man? It it takes two to tango, right? Where's the guy in this? If they, they caught her in the very act, they caught him in the very act as well. So, so was it one of the guys standing there? Did he cre- create this so that they could catch this woman and drag her, drag her before Jesus? It, the whole thing stinks. It reeks. It's repulsive. I don't know exactly what happened. We don't know. But it seems as though they set this up in order to trap Jesus. Their hope is to catch Jesus. They ask the question, what do we do with her? The law of Moses would say to stone her. And that is the law of Moses. If a person were caught, if people were caught in the act of adultery, you would stone them both. That is the law of Moses. It didn't happen very often because not, you don't catch somebody in the act very often. That was the specific law. So they were correct in the way they stated what the law was. Jesus, what do we do here? They're, they're trying to push him into a corner because if he says, we'll let her go, well then, Jesus isn't obeying the law of Moses. He's a lawbreaker. And we can take him down and we can show that he's a lawbreaker. We can give a specific example and he can, they, 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 they can get rid of his ministry. But if they, if he says to stone her, yeah, go ahead and stone her. Well, then two things, I think. First, he's not the merciful Messiah that he's portraying himself to be. And second, he's breaking Roman law. You see, the Romans were over the region at the time. They were the ones that had the ultimate authority over even the Jewish law, and they created a law that said no no one can execute somebody under Jewish law without Roman approval. And so if they said Jesus, if Jesus said, yeah, go ahead and stone her, he was breaking then Roman law and they could turn him into the, to, to Rome. So kind of, you're stuck either way. If they say, if, if he says stoner, well, or if he says let her go, then he's breaking the Mosaic law. If they say, if he says stoner, then he's breaking the Roman law and they think they have him trapped. 
And Jesus stoops down, begins to write on the ground as though he didn't hear them. Perhaps he needed a moment to get with his father to hear what, what the wisdom would be in, in, in this moment to figure out how exactly to handle this. Perhaps he was creating a delay for a reason. What was he writing in the sand? That's what everybody wants to know, right? Everybody, that's the common question. Well, what was he writing? I don't know. No one does. A lot of people have speculation, but nobody knows for sure what he was writing. Verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So Jesus After he's pressured, they continue to ask him, what do we do with this woman, Jesus? What would you have us do with this woman? The squeaky wheel gets the oil. They continue to press him, and finally he stands up in full control, not in rage or anything like that, and he answers perfectly. Perfectly. He says, okay, I'll obey the Mosaic law, but we'll do it this way. Whichever one of you has not sinned, you start the stoning. And then he began to write again. They were trying to back the Lion of Judah into a corner. You don't do that to a lion because you won't come out unscathed. You're going to get a swipe. And that's what Jesus does in this moment. Whoever's without sin cast the first stone. None of them were. So verse 9 says, Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And so as Jesus is writing in the sand, some would speculate that he was writing the names of the men there and next to their names writing perhaps one of the sins they had committed that day. Or had they had an issue in their life, a, a continuing issue. Perhaps he wrote that down. They don't really know. But that's what one would speculate. And as he was writing, these men, they're trying to trap him, say, man, this was dumb. What a, what a fool I am. And, and from the oldest to the youngest, their convictions reach their hearts, and they leave. And they walk away. That conviction that comes, even before we're in Christ, that's a work of God. The the theological term would be a prevenient grace, a grace given to all. The conviction of heart is a prevenient grace that God gives us. That the Holy Spirit would even try to reach us before we come to Him and before we believe in Him, that we have a conviction in our heart. As you continue in sin and as you struggle in sin or as you or don't rather as you live a life of sin, that conviction becomes less and less. Your conscience, it says, becomes seared. And then it's harder to hear or feel that conviction. But in this moment, the conviction was strong enough that they walked away. And they said, We're, this is dumb. 
Verse 10, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So Jesus, after they've all left, he stands up and he looks her in the eye. He says, where'd they go? There's, there's no one here to condemn me, Lord. Think about this for just a second. The charge was, Jesus said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. In that group of men standing there, there was only one who was without sin, and it's the one left standing there after everybody has left. Jesus lived the sinless, perfect life. He has the righteous judgment to be able to cast the stone. He is in, in the right to cast the stone on this woman, but he does not. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It was his to take, and he did not. He opted to say, no, I do not condemn you. I like that she calls him in that statement, Lord. The Greek word kyrios, kyrios, meaning, listen to this, he to whom a person or thing belongs, about which he has power of deciding. When you call somebody Lord, what you are saying is, I belong to you, and you have the power to decide what's best for me. And she calls him that. She stands before him and calls him Lord. She understands that he could cast the stone. And he says, I'll decide not to condemn you. And you know what? That's true of my life. That's true of your life as well. We stand before a righteous judge. One who has the authority to condemn us. The one that can cast the stone. But in His mercy, He does not condemn those that are in Him. He does not condemn those that are in Him. It reminds me of Romans chapter 8. Perhaps your mind went there as well. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those that are in Christ, the followers of Christ, those that are shown His mercy, let me say that again, those that are in Christ are shown the mercy that is shown or that is given to this woman. You and I experience the same mercy for those that are in Him that this woman experienced. We deserve the stone cast by His hand, and yet He says, I don't condemn you. Jesus does not condemn. And you and I should, for those that are in Him, we say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for not condemning me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you that Your mercy triumphs over judgment. And we live for Him. And I want us to see that also because not only does He say, I don't condemn you to this woman, but He also says, go and sin no more. 
I want us to see that Jesus, yes, he says, I give you mercy. I'm not going to cast the stone today, but please live a holy life. There's a call to holiness there, and we can miss that. Yes, we're not condemned, but at the same time, Jesus says, now go and sin no more. Don't live in that lifestyle anymore. Don't, don't ever get caught in adultery again. Live a holy life. The church of today, not just us, the, the church as a whole, as a whole, does very well at championing grace. We are all about grace. Oh, God's grace. Oh, God, oh, you fell again. God's grace. God's grace. And that's good. We need to have God's grace. And I fully want to champion God's grace. But there's also a call to holiness that many in the church don't bother with anymore. Oh, you're going to fall again. You're going to, and when you do, there's grace there. Yes, that's true. But as Christ followers, you and I are called to live a righteous life. We're called to look different. We're called to live different. We're called to be different by the power of Christ in us. Go and sin no more. Will we fall? Yes, we will fall. But his, and his grace is there. But that doesn't mean we don't try. That doesn't mean we don't strive to pursue righteousness with all that I am. Both this statement of non-condemnation and the call to holiness are given to this woman, and they're given to you and I as well. So that kind of ends that little scene. They've all left and the woman goes, hopefully not sinning. And, and, and now he turns his attention, Jesus does, back to what he was doing, the teaching. It says in verse 12, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I love that. He is the light of the world. I said when we started studying the Gospel of John that it's really centered around these statements, these I am statements. And this is another one where he proclaims, I am the light of the world. The original language, the I am there, is a a declaration that he is God. It's ego ami. E-G-O-E-I-M-I. Ego ami. And that means I am. And it's the same phrase that the Father used in the burning bush when Moses asked, who shall I tell them, meaning the Israelites, who shall I tell them sent me? And the Father says, I am. It's the name of God. And Jesus boldly, as the Son of God, takes that name upon Himself rightfully And says, I am. And then he makes these statements throughout the book of John. I am the bread of life. I am the vine. And here we see, I am the light of the world. Think about light for a minute. If we don't have it, if we don't have light, we we aren't here. We don't survive without light. I mean, if, if the sun were to be suddenly extinguished, it would not be long before we were dead. The temperature would plummet because we get our heat from the sun, our light from the sun, and we, we would die. Without light, there is no life. And so is true in the spiritual realm as well. Without life, we have not life. We cannot survive without it. Now think about this. 
in the time of Jesus as he was proclaiming to be the light of the world, he didn't have LED burning lights. He didn't have these candelabra things that we do. The only source of light they had was fire. Fire from a candle, fire from a lantern, fire from a bonfire. So when he says light, you and I think light. But when he says light to them, they think fire. And anytime you read a fire in the Word of God, it means judgment. So is he saying, I am the judge of the world? Perhaps. Now in a few verses, he's going to say, I've come not to judge. And what he means by that this time I've come not to judge. We know that Jesus is coming yet again. And in, as he comes back, he will come to judge. But the first time that he came, he came in God's mercy. So perhaps he's alluding to, I, I will judge the world. And it's going to say I, his, right, his judgments are righteous. What is Jesus saying when he's the light of the, he says he's the light of the world? I think he's saying first that he is the life giver. As I said, without light we have not life. But I also think he's saying that he is the righteous judge. That he is the one that can judge properly. He is the fire if you would, if you would. So as we walk our world, walk this life, Jesus in that moment, proclaimed, I am the light of the world. He has not been extinguished. Therefore, the light is shining. Right here, right today, right now, the light is shining. Do you see it? Can you see Him? Do you know Him? He is shining. That has not stopped. If you can't, you're blind. The only people that don't see the light are those that are blind in the physical, but also in the spiritual. Think about this. In the beginning of John, as we consider that Jesus is the light of the world, in the beginning of John, we read in verse 14, chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? The Word meaning Jesus became flesh. He became flesh and dwelt among us in Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Then think about what Psalm 119, verse 145 says. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The Word is a lamp. The Word became Jesus. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Therefore, Jesus can rightly say, I am the light of the world. I wonder how this all came about as they were there packing up the 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 wares from the end of the the feast this tabernacle they were putting things away they had um in the in the in the festival in the time of gathering I, I told you about the pitcher thing last week where they would bring pitchers of water but they would also have many different forms of light they would as they wanted to remember what God had done by bringing them out of the wilderness one of the things they would do is they would set up this huge candelabra burning brightly for the eight days to remind them of the pillar of fire as they came in from the, the wilderness. Well, that now, as this is the day after the feast, that candelabra has been extinguished and they're probably taking it down and putting it away. And so maybe as he walks by them cleaning up the candelabra that has been put away, he turns and says, no, I'm still burning. I'm still burning brightly. 
It used to be that the glory of the Lord dwelt in the temple. But as we read in the beginning of Samuel, Ichabod, which means the glory of the Lord had departed, and so they have to create this candelabra. And Jesus says, the glory's here. I'm back. I'm here. The Pharisees in verse 13, therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. They listen to Jesus proclaim to be the light of the world, and they're like, you're just talking. You bear, you're, bearing your, you're lying is what they're saying. You need the collaboration of two witnesses in order for your statement to be true, Jesus. Jesus answered in verse 14 and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going but you do not know where I come from and where I'm going. The Pharisees are starting to escalate their argument, and Jesus is going toe-to-toe with them. He's got a defense for everything that he does. He says, you don't even know where I come from where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. And here he says, I judge no one. And I will caveat that by saying he does not in this trip judge, but he will come to judge. It says in 16, yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Jesus says, you want your two witnesses? Me and Dad. Me and Dad. And guys, that's the majority. (laughs) They win. (laughs) That's all the witness he needs, because his testimony is true. Also note, what does he say there in 18? I am the one who bears witness of myself and the Father who sent me. How many times have we read that in the book of John? I brought it up last week, but here it is again. He who sent me, he who sent me. Jesus is always on mission because he's been sent by the Father and he's fulfilling the mission of the Father. And in Christ, you and I are sent on mission too. Jesus is always about it. That's what we're reading in the book of John over and over again. We are to be as well. Then they said to him, Where is your father? Luke, I no, never mind. Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. They ask him, Where's your dad? You you say your dad's your witness. Where is he? Where is your father? Jesus said, You don't know him. The religious leaders of the day Those that proclaimed to know Him and teach others about Him, they did not know Him, Jesus says. Because the only way to know the Father is through the Son. And they were refusing to know the Son, so they did not know the Father. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as He taught in the temple. And no one laid hands on Him, for His hour had not yet come. I like that. Jesus... Is untouchable. <laughs> they, they probably wanted to at this point. They were, they were ready to lay fists on him. Yet he's untouchable because his hour had not yet come. You know what? Those that are in Christ, you are too. You are untouchable until your day comes. The Word of God would tell us that each of us have a set number of days 
that each of us have a day that we are going to die. I don't know when mine is. You don't know when yours is. And the Father controls that. But until that day comes, you're untouchable. You're not going to die. You're not going to die a day early. You're not going to die a day late. God is sovereign. He's in control of those things. It's not going to happen. You are untouchable until that day comes. And I hope what that does is give you boldness. If God is for me, who could be against me? I hope that gives you boldness in your witness. What's the worst thing that could happen? They take my life and I get to go be with the Father. If that's that's the case, then that's what was meant to be because my days are numbered. He's in control. He's in control. Just as He is of Jesus' life, He is of yours as well. You're untouchable until then. Now, we have an adversary, a thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. One that would try to make our life as miserable as hell. And he he can do that, but he's not going to take your life until your day is up. I hope you find boldness in that. Then Jesus said to them, verse 21, I'm going away, and you'll seek me, and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Another line in the sand. Another cross this mark. He's, he's making a bold statement. What is he speaking of? Well, of course, he's speaking of heaven. Why? Because no one who dies in their sin is permitted there. Heaven is a righteous place, and sin may not enter in. And so he speaks of heaven. I'm going to heaven, and those that die in their sin, they cannot Come there, he says. We're not permitted if we die in our sins. That's why it's imperative that we believe in the sacrifice that Jesus made, that our sins may be forgiven, that we may come into that place. So the Jews said, verse 22, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. These guys are giving me a headache. I don't know about you, but they are thick skulled or something. They, they couldn't be more wrong in their statement. He's speaking of going to heaven and they're thinking about him going to hell. In that day, they believed that if a person were to commit suicide, that they went to the lowest part of hell. And they're saying, I'm not going there because I'm not taking my own life. And so um, where he's going, I can't go there because I'm not. So they, he must be talking about suicide. Jesus isn't going to take his life. He's going to give it up. They're going to take it. They're going to take his life. They couldn't be more wrong in this. And he said to them, almost as though he he, he understands what they're thinking, he'll kill himself. He says, you are from beneath, and I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I love that. He turns the table in that moment. He says, no, 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 no. You've got it wrong. I'm not going there. You're the ones from beneath. I'm... I'm not of this world. You're of this world. Have you guys seen those stickers? The uh, N-O-T-W? Have you caught that? If you're a Christian and you want people to know that you're a Christian, in our culture, what you do is you put a fish on your car, right? I mean, that's what everybody does. And then you see them driving 92 miles an hour as though the fish ex- you know, excuses their sin. <laughs> well, if you're really holy... Then you get the fish and the NOTW sticker. What's NOTW? Not of this world. It's actually kind of a cool sticker. It's a, it looks like the word now with a cross in it. Kind of a cool sticker and a good reminder 
I'm not trying to make fun of it. I don't have either on my car. I'd rather have my life tell, tell people who I am, not my car. And so um, I don't put anything on there. But for those that have it, it's a cool sticker, not of this world. It's a good reminder. Hey, we're, we're aliens. We're sojourners. We, we don't live in and of this world. As Jesus said, I am not of this world. It's a, it's a call to look different. It's a call to live different. It reminds me of Romans chapter 12. I, I love Romans chapter 12. I go to it often. You're going to hear it a lot from the pulpit. But in, in verse 2 of Romans 12, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Your life, Christ follower, should look different than the rest of the world. Think about it. If you go to somebody and say, hey, Jesus made a difference in my life and your life looks exactly the same as theirs, why would they believe you? You you have to look different. There has to be something different about you that you can say, this is how Jesus changed me. But if we're striving after the same thing the rest of the world is striving after, if we're pursuing the shiny things of this world and that's all the life that we have, we're failing at living a holy life. We're failing at what God has called us to do, to not conform to the pattern of this world. You are of this world, He tells them. I am not of this world. And as Christ followers, we are not to be of this world as well. You guys know, those that uh, have been my friends for a long time, or as I've explained uh, now and again, I've been involved in uh, a movement called the Passion Movement. It's a, a conference that happens every year for the, the college-age Christian, 18 to 25-year-olds. They gather uh, to, to worship God and to, to lean, um, learn, of, uh, learn of Him through teaching. And I've been volunteering since um, 2005 for that conference. Um, and that conference was this weekend. And uh, I didn't go this year, just with everything we got going on with bringing Kindu home and what's happening with the church and everything. I just said, you know what, I need to take a break from that this year. But uh, all weekend I've been stalking it on Twitter, you know, hashtag Passion2014 and reading the, the 36 tweets. That, there's 20,000 college students gathered in Atlanta for to, to worship God this weekend. And uh, this massive event going up and it's really uh, it's it's awesome to be a part of but as i was reading the tweets last night they actually closed it last night and, and reading about what louis giglio was teaching he was exhorting them to live a holy life he was challenging them to say i am not of this world i need my life to look different than the rest of this world so that people I, so that when i say jesus made a difference in me people can see that difference there is a call to holiness in our lives he said it this way it was kind of interesting he said go up to somebody and say hey i'm an alien in this world see what that starts <laughs> What's the number for Area 51? <laughs> we, we have an alien. But we are. This is not our home, Christian. This is just a moment. We're going to be with Him forever. Let's, let's live a different life. Don't conform. He continues on in verse 24. Therefore, I, say to, I said to you that you will die in your sins For if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Chris, you skipped a word. Well, I don't know how your Bible has it there. Is it in brackets? Or is it in italics, the word he there? 
What that tells you is it wasn't in the original manuscript. Okay? Perhaps it is suggested, but I think here it's better without it. Why? Read it without it. I'll read it again. What he says is in verse 24, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. If you do not believe, ego ami, if you do not believe that I am God, you will die in your sins. That's the way it is. I love that strong statement. As he boldly proclaims that he is God. And that's what we've been talking about since we cracked open John 3.16. It's a belief. It's what you and I believe, that we place our faith in the fact that Jesus died, that we might have the forgiveness of our sins. If you do not believe that Jesus is God, if you do not believe I am, you will die in your sins. Then he said to him, then they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I would lose it right now. Were this, were I in this conversation, I would probably punch somebody in the face. After all of this, for chapters, for two and a half years, he's been proclaiming, I am. They come back and they say, well, who are you? Blah! <laughs> were it me? <laughs> Jesus handles it in stride, always in control. Just what have I been saying to you from the beginning? Go back and think about what I've been telling you, is what he's saying. To me, their blindness is baffling. That they could sit and watch this man for two and a half years and not see that he was God. Their blindness is truly baffling to me. He says in verse 26, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me, there it is again, is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him we've heard this message too. I've been sent. I've been given a message. This message is not my own is what Jesus is saying. It's given to me by the Father. I am a steward of this message that that the Father has given me to champion the, the grace that is offered in this moment by me giving up my life, he says. I'm an ambassador on behalf of the Father to tell you that I love you, that He loves you, is what Jesus is saying. They did not understand that He spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and that I do nothing of Myself. But as My Father taught Me, I speak these things. Even now, six months out from the the event, He knows how His life is going to end. He knows exactly what's going to take place. Because He says, When you lift Me up, And of course, he's referring to the cross. When you nail me to the cross, then you will see that I am. And we see that, don't we? When we we see Jesus give up his life, breathe his last, after he's cried out, I paid it all, and he dies. There's a centurion standing there. And in, in, in one man, Almost all the world represented. And he says, Surely this was the Son of God. Surely this was the Son of God. They do see it. He does see it. We do see it when Jesus is lifted up. 
And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do the things that please him. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Jesus now encouraging those that say that they believe in him. It's another call to holiness here. Another, uh, he's, he's bringing them on. Uh, abide in my word and you'll be my disciples indeed. Live in me. Abide in my word. Let it absorb into your heart. Walk in my ways is what abide would mean. Matthew 3.8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. May your life demonstrate that you are a follower of Christ. May people be able to see the change that God has made in you. Another call to holiness. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Are you free this morning, church? Those that follow Christ, do you live a freed life? Are you still enslaved to the the ways of this world? Are you still enslaved to the bondage of sin? Is Jesus become your jailbreak? In sin, we are imprisoned. And Jesus opens that door that we might have life in Him. Learned a song at the men's conference we went to back in November called Jailbreak. I was going to try to read it all to you. I, I have it. I, I know the song well enough. And then the first service, I couldn't remember past the first line. Jailbreak, Vertical Church Band, if you want to look it up on YouTube, it's on there. But the, the, I'll try to do the first verse. He says, go on and speak against my borrowed innocence. Your blood has set me free. No, that's not it. Go on and speak against my borrowed innocence. See, I'm going to mess it up again. I heard the freedom bell ring through the halls of hell, and I have been set free. In Christ, you are free. There is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. You're free. Now live like it. Act like it. With that freedom comes a call to holiness. Go and sin no more. May our lives look different than that of the world as we proclaim that He is our King. Amen? Let's stand. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, I thank You for this call to holiness, this call to live a life that is not of this world. And Lord, I can't do that in my own strength. We cannot do that in our own ability. But Jesus says, the Father was with You. You have sent the Spirit to be with us. Those that are in Christ have the Spirit of God dwelling in our hearts that we might live a different life. That we might pursue righteousness, as Paul told Timothy. That we might set our affections on the things of Your kingdom. God, Do a work in us. I pray that as a church, 
that as we scatter from this place to go to our various homes and work and school, Lord, that we would look different in a great way, that we would carry the joy of the Lord and that we would make a difference, an impact in, in our lives and in, in others' lives for your kingdom and for your, your ways, O oh God. Make us bold for you. Help us to reflect that you are the light of life until you come to take us home. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.